Welcome to the October 2013 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, how two drugs currently used to treat hepatitis C could help in the fight against the deadly MERS virus. This is really a combination that you can basically pick up any day and start treating someone, and that was, the, in our view, the beauty of this. How the fabled Framingham Heart Study is responding to a 40% cut in its core contract. Framingham, like any good study to be successful, uh, must adapt and adopt uh, new methods. Plus, a natural experiment in flu immunity and a new approach to targeting brain cancer. But first, the killer link between fungus and asthma. In the late 17th century, John Floyer, an English physician, wrote in his esteemed Treatise on Asthma of someone, and I quote, who fell into a violent fit by going into a wine cellar where the must was fermenting. That report, from 1698, was the first published record of an allergic reaction to fungi. Now, fast forward 300 years, and you might think that we know how must, mold, and other fungi actually cause asthma. But you'd be wrong. And that's a problem for a small but significant fraction of asthma sufferers, says Lee Albuquer, a postdoc at the Harvard Medical School. Fungal sensitization is somewhat uncommon, but in severe asthmatics, it's as high as 45% of them. Albuquer, back when he was a graduate student with Dale Ometsu at the nearby Boston Children's Hospital, he set out to determine what it was that was causing the allergic sensitization to fungi. And he focused on one mold species in particular called Aspergillus fumigatus. He took an extract of Aspergillus fumigatus, gave it to mice, and noticed that one special group of immune cells became activated. So the, the full name of the cells is invariant natural killer T-cells, which is quite a mouthful, but uh, all natural killer T-cells recognize lipid antigens instead of protein, which is what T-cells normally recognize. And the invariant part comes from a specialized T-cell receptor, which recognizes lipids on a protein called CD1D. And what's interesting about these cells for asthma is that they're present in the airways of severe asthmatics, and also they are not inhibited by steroids. And steroids are the most common treatment for mild asthmatics. So to recap, We've got an immune cell that responds to lipids, not proteins, and one that doesn't respond to steroids, the standard course of therapy. Now back to the research. Albuquerque and his team next purified the exact lipid in the fungal spores that was activating the natural killer, or NKT cells. We found the lipid itself is sufficient to cause what we call airway hyperreactivity, or asthma, in these animals. And this also activated uh, human NKT cells in culture, which suggests it might be causing human asthma also. Albuquerque's results basically end there, but the implications of those results could be far-reaching. Now, drugs that target natural killer T-cells, and there are many in development for cancer treatment, those drugs could be tried in people with severe asthma. Therapies targeting NKT cells are generally well-tolerated, and so it shouldn't be hard to run a clinical trial from the patient risk perspective. Um, the money is always the issue, but I, th I think the molecules that are out there uh, could be very effective in this. Lee Albuquerque's paper can be found in the October issue of Nature Medicine. Coming up, a drug cocktail for the MERS virus, but first, scientists edge closer to a universal flu vaccine. With the story, here's Nature Medicine news intern Ariel Duhame-Ross.
Flu season is upon us, which means it's time to get your seasonal flu vaccine. If you're lucky, that vaccine will contain the strains of influenza that end up circulating this year. But that's by no means a given. So scientists have long sought a kind of universal flu vaccine. Basically, a shot that could be given once and then provide lasting protection against all flu strains. Such a universal flu vaccine sure would have come in handy four years ago, when a new kind of H1N1 flu virus appeared, the dreaded swine flu. This virus ended up killing close to 300,000 people worldwide. That was the bad part. But it also provided a unique scientific opportunity. In a sort of natural experiment, the swine flu pandemic allowed scientists to study what happens when a population is infected with a flu virus that is so different from past influenza strains that those who are infected have little to no immunological protection. By tracking the health of 342 adults in the United Kingdom during two consecutive influenza seasons, in which swine flu was the predominant strain, Researchers found that those who survived H1N1 during the first season were less severely affected by later flu exposure. And these people had a specific type of immune cell, what's known as a CD8 cytotoxic killer T cell, to thank for the added protection. Study author Ajit Lalvani, an immunologist at Imperial College London, explains. We correlated the frequency of the T cells of baseline with the presence of these symptoms, runny nose, dry hacking cough, these sort of symptoms. And we found that those people who had the highest numbers of killer T cells typically had the lowest number of symptoms and in some cases no symptoms at all. Does this also mean that those who were infected with H1N1 in 2009 are less likely to be infected or does this only have to do with symptoms? It only has to do with symptoms because the T cells can't protect you from getting infected. It's only the antibodies that protect against infection. If you don't have the antibodies, as in the setting of a pandemic, you're going to get infected when you get exposed to the virus. The question is, once you're infected, can you be protected from developing symptoms, from developing illness and becoming severely unwell? What we've discovered is that it's this set of T-cells, this particular population of T-cells, known as CD8 cytotoxic killer T-cells, that protects people from developing symptoms. And that's why these data really provide the blueprint for what's called a universal influenza vaccine. Why do you think this universal vaccine would work? I think it'll work for the following reason. The problem with existing influenza vaccines is that they're always one step behind the virus. They consist of protein. They don't contain live virus. They're protein that essentially induces only an antibody response. And they are matched so that the antibodies induced recognize current circulating strain. Problem is that the virus is continuously mutating. The surface proteins, the hemagglutinin, the neuraminidase, acquire mutations every year, and they drift away from that antibody response, and the vaccines become progressively less effective. And then once every few decades, the surface of the virus undergoes a radical change when new proteins are imported from swine flu virus through recombination or from bird flu virus. However, unlike the surface proteins of the virus, the core proteins of the virus are relatively constant from one year to the next. Even in a pandemic strain, they're very similar to the core proteins of a seasonal flu strain. And the core proteins are recognized not by antibodies, but by T-cells. And so we postulated that the T-cells induced by previous seasonal flu would actually cross-recognize and cross-react with the core proteins of the new pandemic strain. And that if they did cross-react with the proteins of the new pandemic strain, they would also confer protection. And our study fulfilled both hypotheses because we found that in general, people did have T-cells that 
cross-recognized the core proteins of the new pandemic virus. And crucially, the more T cells they had, the more they were protected against the symptoms of infection. So now we really turn the tables on the virus because whereas until now, our vaccination programs have been always one step behind the virus, with a T cell inducing universal vaccine, we actually can get to one step ahead of the virus and actually preempt new pandemic strains by inducing T cells that will protect us against newly arising pandemic viruses that we haven't encountered yet. I guess the question is, what are the next steps? Now it's really just a matter of getting on and building the vaccine and carrying out the necessary clinical trials to confirm safety and effectiveness. Ariel there speaking with Ajit Lalvani. His study, entitled Cellular Immune Correlates of Protection Against Symptomatic Pandemic Influenza, can be found in the latest issue of Nature Medicine. Keeping on the theme of viruses, we turn our attention now to the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus. Astute readers of Nature Medicine may have seen a news story we ran in August about how a lack of small animal model, like a mouse or a hamster, is hindering efforts to develop new drugs to combat the MERS infection. That story did note the existence of a macaque model of infection, and now comes news from the same research team of a drug therapy that actually works in these monkeys. Liz Devitt has more. The Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus has sickened more than 130 people in nine countries so far, and doctors have little to offer affected individuals. There's no vaccine, and treatment is largely supportive at this point. As a result, close to half of all people infected with MERS to date have died. Fortunately, help could be on the way in the form of two antiviral drugs now commonly used to treat hepatitis. Reporting in the latest issue of Nature Medicine, researchers from the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, Rocky Mountain Laboratories in Montana, showed that a combination of ribavirin and interferon therapy could improve symptoms in rhesus macaques infected with the MERS virus. To learn how applicable these results might be to human cases of MERS, I spoke with Heinz Feldman, chief of the virology lab at the Rocky Mountain Labs, and I started by asking him how closely infection in monkeys mimics the conditions seen in people. It mimics what we think is a mild to moderate MERS coronavirus infections in humans, but it certainly does not mimic uh, the severe cases that we're normally seeing reported in ProMed. But that's also not necessary. It just depends what you want. Uh, Of course, in this case, our goal was to develop a model that would mimic human disease. That's usually what everybody wants. And then you have a model here that mimics human disease, but not the severe form of MERS coronavirus infection. So you chose the interferon and the ribavirin combination because you had shown that in cell culture, those two together would lower the dose for a potential effective treatment for the macaques. That was one reason, and that was the main reason in in our streamline or thinking. Uh, But these two drugs in that combination are being used in the clinic for hepatitis C, for example. So so this is really a combination that you can basically pick up any day and start treating someone, and that was, in our view, the beauty of this. So how many monkeys did you infect versus how many you compared to? In this study, three infected, uh, six infected, three treated, three non-treated. We used the regime that had been used in uh, macaques um, before uh, for acute viral infection and treated for 72 hours. And the reason for that was because that was the peak, or we believe is the peak 
of virus replication in untreated animals um, with MERS coronavirus and, and then use viral load pathology um, as, as one of our readout uh, um, parameters, but we also followed the clinical presentation by scoring. So, so basically, in all the parameters, we, we saw benefit of the treatment. Do you know if these drugs have to be given within a certain time frame to be effective, like within 48 well, it hours? Well, with every antiviral, uh, as earlier as you start treatment, as better are your chances to have a benefit on the outcome of the infection. And what's next? Where do you go with these results? Do you test more macaques? Do you trial it in people? This is one option of a treatment. We're not saying that this is going to save the world, and uh, it's not the ultimate treatment. We know that already, uh, and we have already moved on. So we're testing drugs as others are doing that that are either on the market or already in clinical trials that make sense, either uh, in, in a standalone fashion or in combination. And at the moment, we're, we're going the route um, in vitro testing and then non-human primate testing. Uh, of course, we would love to have a small animal model so that we can pre-screen these drugs and, and then only go with the most promising one into you know, the ultimate non-human primate model. But that's not just us. So many people are trying to get optimized uh, treatment strategies, and, and hopefully something uh, in the near future comes out either from from this lab or from the labs from of our colleagues. Liz there talking with Heinz Feldman. Last month, U.S. lawmakers were gripped by yet another budget battle, and it may have felt a little bit like deja vu all over again. If you'll remember, one of the last times politicians in Washington were debating how to prevent a government shutdown they introduced a measure called the sequester, basically a series of automatic spending cuts that was meant to force Democrats and Republicans into some sort of grand bargain. It didn't. And so federal agencies, including the National Institutes of Health, have been taking out their red pens and making cuts in an effort to balance their now-shrunken budgets. One of the casualties of those cuts is the long-running Framingham Heart Study, which, since 1948, has been studying healthy people in a community in Massachusetts to better understand the root causes of heart disease. In August, the Framingham Heart Study lost $4 million from the $9 million core contract it receives from the NIH. That's a big blow, says study director Daniel Levy. The sequestration will slow the pace of scientific discovery, and and scientific programs are being affected uh, by the budget cut that we are experiencing. Uh, One of our programs to detect new biomarkers for cardiovascular disease uh, will be scaled back in its scope, and its current uh, year funding will be reduced by about 40 percent, which will uh, reduce the potential impact of that uh, large scientific discovery project. I met with Daniel Levy for a Q&A in the October issue of Nature Medicine. We discussed the impact of the cuts, which include firing 19 of the study's 90 staff members. Plus, we talked about how the Framingham investigators plan to scale back some of the in-person clinical examinations in favor of cheaper alternatives that take advantage of newer technologies. Framingham, like any good study to be successful, uh, must adapt and adopt uh, new methods. If doing the best possible research involves data using other methods, 
uh, be it uh, online questionnaires or, or apps that you can use on a smartphone, that will be the sort of thing that we uh, investigate and consider introducing here in Framingham, just as we introduced uh, new technologies throughout our history. Our goal is to reinvent ourselves in ways that allow us to remain highly relevant, highly productive, and at the cutting edge of science. I asked Levy how confident he was that the Framingham Heart Study could weather this storm. As someone who has been involved in the project for nearly 30 years and has directed it for close to 20, he naturally took the long view. We're facing a challenge today, but it's not the only challenge we've faced in our history. And we've been able to succeed in the past, and I'm confident we'll be able to succeed again, both because we do great research and because we're a relatively small and nimble uh, group of investigators here. You can find my interview with Levy on our website, nature.com slash naturemedicine. We end this month now with a new promising approach to treating a type of brain cancer known as glioma. Most efforts at targeting glioma cells have failed. But here's a new idea. What if you don't go after the cells themselves, but rather target the environment surrounding the cancer cells? That's the approach being taken by Johanna Joyce. She's a cancer biologist at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And in the latest issue of Nature Medicine, she and her colleagues report that a compound that inhibits a key signaling pathway used by immune cells called macrophages can slow tumor growth in most models of the disease. The exact target is called the Colony Stimulating Factor 1 Receptor, or CSF1R. Nature Medicine's Miraswamy spoke with Joyce to find out why they decided to block this receptor. What prompted you to home in on the macrophage receptor called CSF1R? We found that the numbers of macrophages and microglia increased substantially in a mouse glioma model as tumors progressed to higher grades, as is also observed in glioma patients. And so this suggested they may actually play a role in promoting glioma progression. Because of this association, we wanted to see whether we could affect glioma progression by depleting macrophages. Colony-stimulating colony factor 1 receptor, or CSF1R, is important for macrophage survival. And so inhibition of CSF1R signaling was one approach we could use to target these cells specifically. What happened when you gave this new drug that targeted CSF1R to mice with brain glioma tumors? There was a striking effect on survival when we gave the drug to mice shortly after we had induced glioma formation. And in a separate preclinical trial where we treated animals with high-grade gliomas, we saw a dramatic regression of established GBM. Surprisingly, the drug didn't seem to actually have its effects on tumors by decreasing the number of macrophages. So how do you explain your results? Yes, we were very surprised about that too, as it wasn't what we were expecting. We found that normal macrophages, called microglia, in the adjacent normal brain were depleted, as we would have predicted, but that the number of tumor-associated macrophages and gliomas was not affected. We found that there are glioma-specific survival factors that allow tumor-associated macrophages to survive in the face of CSF1R inhibition, but which are not present or not available in sufficiently high levels in the normal brain to protect microglia against the drug. We isolated these glioma-associated macrophages from mice treated with the drug and found that genes associated with the alternatively activated or M2 macrophage polarization state were among those downregulated. M2 polarization has been proposed to be associated with tumor-promoting functions of macrophages, and so this was a very intriguing result. We also found that the drug-treated macrophages had an increased phagocytic capacity 
consistent with a change in their phenotype and a loss of tumour-promoting function. What evidence did you find that targeting CSF1R may also have utility in human patients? We used several different types of tumour spheres that our collaborators had freshly isolated from glioma patients following surgery and tested those in xenografts in vivo and again found that CSF1R inhibition effectively slowed glioma growth. CSF1R inhibitors are now being tested in glioma patients in the clinic and we're very interested to see how these progress. Mira there, talking with Johanna Joyce. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. You can find out more about everything you heard on the program on our website, nature.com slash naturemedicine. There, you can also read a news feature about how advances in process chemistry are bringing down the price of HIV drugs, plus how the gas attacks in Syria have reinvigorated efforts to develop new countermeasures for sarin and other nerve agents. As always, we'd love to hear what you thought about the show. You can write to us at medicine at us.nature.com. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dalgan. Thanks for listening.